reading this morning comes from Zechariah chapter 1 verse 7 all the way through to chapter 4 verse 6. So that's a long one, strap yourselves in. Um, If you don't know where Zechariah is in your Bible, it's between Haggai and Malachi. I'm sure that's very helpful for you. (laughs) So it's about middle of your Bible near the end of the Old Testament or page 1477 if you've got one of the um, Bibles from the church. So just to give you a little bit of context, God's people are in exile and our passage picks up just after God's invited his people to renew their commitment to him. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one could raise their head but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and long it is. While the angel was speaking to me, who was speaking to me, was leaving. Another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, escape, you who live in daughter Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
after the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit, inherit Judah as his portion and the Holy Lamb will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbour to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from a sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you um, that you have spoken throughout the ages, and thank you that this book of Zechariah um, points us straight to Jesus and what you're doing. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us to love Christ more and appreciate particularly Christmas and the time in Advent when we reflect on your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, you'll see an outline also where we're going. You'll need your Bibles open. We're covering chapters 1 to 6 today. But first of all, there's the story of a young American preacher who was recently out of seminary, who at the start of Advent season, which is now, climbed into the pulpit and he began with his text 
from Zechariah, which we have just read, chapter 2, verse 10, Behold, I come unto you. And then, of course, he said that, but his mind went completely blank. And so he stalled, and he said even louder, Behold, I come unto you. Still nothing came to him. So for a third time, he said, Behold, I come unto you. And he hit the pulpit with his hand. The problem was he was a strong lad, ex-footballer. He hit it so hard, the front panel actually gave way, sending him spiralling downwards into the lap of the poor old lady in the front row. And he then looked up into her azure blue eyes and just said, I'm so terribly sorry. To which she said, there's no need. You warned me three times that you were coming. <laughs> so today is the start of Advent season, the time when Christians um, focus their minds on the Lord's coming, the time before Christmas. And the Lord's coming is what God promises in the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 10. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and will live among you says the Lord. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? It's not the shopping, it's not the stress, it's not even the family coming over, even though that's good. This is what we celebrate, God's coming to us. And we think, well, what on earth does that mean? Aside from the fact that God takes on human flesh and knows what it's like to be human, what does it mean for, us to, um, for God to promise to come to us? And he tells us, chapter 1, verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Here is a word of the Lord. One word which contains eight visions and in four layers which explain what God's coming means to us. But first of all, an historical recap, all right? So Zechariah prophesies 520 years before Christ. 70 years before that, Jerusalem... The capital of Judea had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple of God had been burned. God's people had been taken away into exile, away from their land, away from God's blessing. But now, of course, Babylon is no longer an empire. The Persian king Darius has swept to power. And in his second year, God sends a word to Zechariah, a word containing eight visions, a word heralding a new start, a second chance, a new beginning for the Jews who are in exile. Now, don't all of us long for a second chance? All of us, of course, have done things we wished we hadn't. And many here feel that way in their relationship with God. Even if we've been Christians a long time, we can look back, back with regret and long for a chance to begin again. Well, the Jewish exiles got that chance and it's described in a roundabout way in eight visions. And if you look at the diagram in your leaflet, the eight visions are arranged in pairs. There's the first and the last going together. Then there's the second and the seventh vision making a pair, another layer, which build on the first pair. Then the third and the sixth make a third layer, all of these structured in a kind of V shape, where the fourth and the fifth visions are the centrepiece, the focal point of the vision. And the visions are bizarre, but don't get thrown. We all have wacky dreams, and just like a very vivid dream, we know their power is that they stick, and we can remember them, and they keep speaking to us. Well, on the first layer, the first vision and the eighth vision are visions of four horsemen and then four chariots. And these visions 
are of peace, although they are not the same. In the first vision, the, the horsemen go throughout the earth, they report back to the angel, we found the whole world at rest and in peace. And we think, that's brilliant. Except, this is a peace that's been established by Darius in overthrowing the Babylonians. Yes, the world was now at peace, but it's a peace which could only be temporary at, at the best. And it's based on a false confidence, on the might of Darius, which would fade. And a peace which also had not righted the wrongs of the past. And that's why the angel says to God in verse 12, How long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? There's an injustice in the past, you see. And then comes God's response. He says, I'm jealous. I'm very jealous for Judah and Jerusalem. I'm, I'm angry with the nations that feel secure. And therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem. Not the exiles. I will return. Okay. Well, that is the promise from the Lord that he will come. I will return to Jerusalem and proclaim further. My towns will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort and choose Zion. So he's going to come and he's going to overrule a false inadequate priest. He's, he's going to bring in true peace, which is depicted in the eighth vision. This time there's four chariots from the Lord um, of the whole world who go throughout the world to report on what they've found and everyone finds peace. Even the one that goes north, which is the direction from which the invading nations would come. Even there, there is peace. This is a vision of worldwide peace for the people of God. There are no enemies, none at all. This is God's plan for the world. And the question is, therefore, when? When is this going to happen? Zechariah would have been thinking, is it going to happen soon for me? I'm in exile. Well, that depends, of course, on what God thinks about the exile, doesn't it? Second layer, visions two and seven. God's twin perspectives on the exile. Okay, from the second vision, we see the exile from the perspective of world powers. Zechariah sees four horns. The horns in the Bible are symbols of power. An animal has a horn, you know an ox or a, um, you know, what else? Rhino. <laughs> okay, you don't want to get stabbed by a horn. They're a symbol of power in the Old Testament. The horns um, are those which scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem, and therefore they stand for the world powers of Assyria and Babylon, which did this to God's people. But then Zechariah sees four craftsmen standing for the Persians, which come and throw down the horns, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, because the Assyrians and Babylonians were overly cruel in dealing with God's people. And so what this tells us is God is watching and he's using these powers and he's actually punishing them if they go too far beyond their mandate. So there's one perspective on, on the exile. God's in charge. And then we have another perspective, vision seven. This is a bizarre vision of a woman who is called wickedness, who's in a basket and is flying because she's carried by two other women with wings like a stork and she's been carried to Babylon. This is a picture of God's people being taken into exile. Why? Because of their wickedness, because of their sin. So on the one hand, you've got God being in charge. He's ruling over the world empires who have exiled God's people. On the other hand, it's a just punishment for their sin. Which brings us to ask, well, what does God think of them now? And what does that have to do with worldwide peace? Third layer of visions, the city of God. In the third vision, which was read for us, the new Jerusalem is described. 
and it's a wonderful vision. It's impossible to measure. It's a city without walls, so great the number of people and livestock in the city that the Lord himself is going to be a wall of fire around the city, and more than that, he will be the glory within it. This is a city not just for a few, but for many. And his people, he loves them, he calls them the apple of his eye. And so he calls his people, therefore, to come to him. The scattered northern tribes of Israel, scattered by the Assyrians, come to me. The exiled people of Judah, exiled to Babylon, you come. He calls his children to this new restored Jerusalem. But not just his Israelite children, verse 11, speaks of many nations also being joined to the Lord and becoming his people. It's a big vision, isn't it? Jews and Gentiles called by God to come to him, which means leaving their sin, leaving their place of sin, Babylon, and coming to him. You know, coming to God does mean letting go of sin. It means leaving it, leaving it behind, and coming to God. And the vision is of people en masse coming to him, but also of God coming to the people, because the movement is not just one way. God will come to them. And it's because God promises this that we have Christmas. He promised to come to us. And so we see what this means. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Well, what does this coming mean? If you're a Lord of the Rings fans, you might remember the, you know, the Lord of the Rings movies, then the Hobbit movies. In the second Hobbit movie, the movie ends with this terrifying moment when Smaug the dragon takes to the sky and flies off to Lake Town, everyone who's watching knows that it will be a judgment. A judgment will be unleashed and nothing will be the same again, right? Well, the Lord is not Smaug the dragon, but verse 13 has that same sense of awe. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Something has happened. Things will not be the same again. The perspective of Zechariah says the Lord's coming is, on the one hand, wonderful news for everyone who heeds God's call to come to him, but it will be terrible for those who stand against God and against his people. But we can't get past the fact the overall note is that of good news. Because God has announced he is coming to a new Jerusalem, and therefore he calls his people and those who aren't his people but who will become his people, Jewish Gentile believers, to come. Well, what of their sin? The sixth vision is of a flying scroll which has curses on its front and back, saying that there will be no room for thieves or liars in the city of God. In other words, the city will be purified of all the people who had wanted to claim their place within it but have not left their life of sin. Now, at that point, we should be worried, right? Because what hope can sinners like you and me have for a place within that city? Well, we've already been given the hint in the third vision, chapter 2, verse 8. Suddenly, we hear the voice of someone a figure, a complex figure, who is both sent from the Lord and who is the Lord and who speaks the words of the Lord and yet stands as the champion of God's people. He's their defender, someone who will be honoured by the Lord and who, in the end, will raise his hand against the nations who have his people. Who is this figure? Is he the one who will deal with the issue of sin? 
And now the answer comes to us in this centre pair of visions, at the heart of this vision sequence, which speaks to us not of one figure, but of two. The first is that of Joshua, the high priest, who is standing before the angel of the Lord, his garments dirty and stained with sin. And Satan is there accusing Joshua, to which the Lord says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? I've saved him. He was going to be burnt. I've saved him. Joshua's filthy clothes are taken off, and the angel says, See, I've taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Not only is sin dealt with, but the high priest is now spotless, sinless, and can perform his role as high priest before his people. So there's the first figure, Joshua, the high priest. Then there's the second found in chapter 4, a man named Zerubbabel. Now, I have noticed that there aren't too many Christian parents who name their kids Zerubbabel, right? You get a lot of other biblical names being taken up, Luke, Isaac, you know, even Joseph. You know, you could have that good on your Pete. Um, <laughs> chose that one. But Zerubbabel, I don't know, maybe this sermon will cause a resurgence, who knows? Um, there you go. <laughs> He's a great guy. He's tasked with building the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, the interesting thing about Joshua and Zerubbabel is that they are real life historical people. They're mentioned by name in Ezra, chapter 3, verse 8. Joshua was a priest, Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah after Nehemiah at the time when the exiles had returned and were rebuilding the temple. Zechariah prophesied just before this, so this prophecy of Zechariah had an immediate fulfillment. But we have to say, well, did everything come true in the prophecy? Where was the glorious new city with God's ring of fire around it? Didn't happen, did it? Because the temple that was built was frankly a disappointment. You know, it wasn't glorious. And at the time, the people who were exiled, who'd, who'd gone into exile, who'd come back, who were still alive, they went back and they saw the new temple being built and they cried because they remembered the glory of the old one and the new one didn't have a patch on it. It had none of the majesty of Solomon's temple. And so God said to the real-life figure of Zerubbabel, do not despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. The start of the new temple may look small and insignificant, but don't be discouraged just because something starts off small. And then chapter 4, verse 6, that the temple will be built not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God, through his spirit, would build the temple. What's the temple he's talking about? Zerubbabel built a temple, but it was small, unimpressive for hundreds of years. By the time it became impressive in Jesus' day, the Romans destroyed it not long later. In Jerusalem, you know, it's never been the glorious city that God spoke of here. So what do we do with God's promise that he's coming? What do we do with this promise of world peace? God's focusing us in on Joshua and Zerubbabel. Well, God tells us what to do. In chapter 3, verse 8, God tells us Joshua and Zerubbabel are symbolic of things to come. And then he explains, I am going to bring my servant, the branch, from the line of David. It's a way of talking about Christ, the Savior, Joshua. Chapter 3, verse 10, God makes the astounding promise that he will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In chapter 4, the temple will be built not by might, 
or power, but by my spirit. When? Well, it wasn't when the physical temple was rebuilt by Joshua and Zerubbabel in 520 BC. Those men are only symbols, signposts, pointing us to the true high priest, the Messiah, the one Zechariah calls Joshua, which is the Aramaic um, form of the name we know as Jesus. Jesus' parents spoke Aramaic. As a boy, he would have been called Joshua by then. In Greek, it's Yesu. In English, it's Jesus. He is the one who removes the sin of the land in a single day. He is the one who takes on himself the filthy sin of the world. He is the one who's accused by Satan. He is the one who dies to take that sin away and then gives those who believe in him new robes of righteousness to wear. The Joshua we read in Vision 4, it's Jesus. He takes away the sin of the land in a single day. And Zerubbabel, he points us to the Spirit poured out on all who believe. After Jesus died and rose from the dead, the Spirit of God who builds the temple of God. And so, of course, when we ask, what does Christmas mean for us? Well, here's what it must mean from Zechariah. Three things. First of all, that the Lord is jealous for us. We'll spend more time on this next week, but here. All of what God promises here comes out of his jealousy for his people. He doesn't want his people left in exile far away from him under sin. He doesn't want us to be away from him in the land of sin. He wants us to be with him. And he is jealous that this is so. You know, we see the nativity. We normally think of Jesus in the manger and, and therefore remember God's love for us. Well, from Zechariah, God is telling us that his love for us is a jealous love. We are his. And we are, when we are not with him, when our hearts are sold to someone else, when we sell out on him, he is very jealous about this. He wants me. He wants the whole of me, and he wants the whole of you, all of us. He's jealous. We belong to him, and he's got jealous love. Secondly, Christmas means we must return to the Lord. Yes, of course, God says he will come to us, but God also calls his people who are far away to come to him. In chapter 1, the Lord Almighty says, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you says the Lord Almighty. Well, that's what the Lord Almighty is saying to us. Return to him. You see, God's done his part. He has come. And through Jesus, our high priest, taking on our sin and by dying for us to take away that sin in a single day, he opens the way for us to return to him. And so what we must do, what we cannot fail to do, is return to him. That is the meaning of Christmas for us. There's the application. This is what God's coming to us means. He comes to us, so we will come to him. I don't care if you've um, never come to God at all or whether you've done it ten times or a thousand times. All of us can still find ourselves away from the Lord in our hearts. Uh, we can find ourselves holding on to sin. God is calling us to leave Babylon. Leave your place of sin. Come to him. He is the God of second chances. Return to the Lord.
Thirdly and finally, be still before the Lord. As a church, we've discussed finances, money, (laughs) plans for next year. You know, not all the plans nor all the activity or all the money in the world can turn someone back to God and bring about that conviction of sin and faith which comes by the Spirit of God. And that's why God tells us to be still. Because God tells us that he will build his temple, not by might, not by power, but by his Spirit. And right now, God is doing exactly this. He is building his temple by his Spirit. He is doing it because as his word is going out, which it is right here, right now, he is bringing conviction of sin and he's bringing assurance of forgiveness through Jesus. And he is calling people to come to him and hearts are being prompted to do it. And we pray that that would happen tonight at Carol's coming through Jesus Christ and his word. What, we think, what of Jesus' second coming? Because Advent reminds us of that too, doesn't it? Well, from Zechariah 2, we read that when the incarnate one, Jesus, comes, he will raise his hand against all who are God's enemies, so that even if the spirits of heaven were to search for any enemies of God, they wouldn't be able to find any. And he will bring in the new Jerusalem from heaven, we're also told. The city described in Zechariah, a huge city with God around it and with God in it. Well, we're still waiting, aren't we? Are you waiting? I hope you're waiting. I hope you're actively waiting. In the house we've moved from, uh, funny things used to happen at night, not in the house, but sometimes when the night was quiet, we'd hear these rumblings in the distance, like this. And sometimes the windows would tremble a bit. We never knew what it was. If anyone can tell us what it was, it would be nice. But it kind of felt like a distant earthquake. It would happen quite frequently. One night, the rumbling was louder than normal and it went on longer and the windows began to rattle. And Lillian, she was about 17, ran out from her bedroom that night and with her eyes open and a look of hope in her, in her, in her face, she said, I think Jesus is coming. <laughs> and then the sort of rumbling went on but then stopped. I said, I don't know, it might have been an earthquake, I'm not sure. And she went, and then she walked back into a room. She was not happy. <laughs> um, but it was lovely, wasn't it, that her reaction, her first reaction, was not one of fear, but of just excitement and hope. I hope you're waiting. I hope you're waiting for him to come. Because Zachariah has told us, God, he's jealous for us. He has roused himself to come to us, which he did in Christ's first coming. And now through his spirit, God is calling people to return to him. Why? Because he's going to come again. And from Revelation 21, let me remind you what will happen at that great moment. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, 
or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Father, we praise you that at a time of suffering for your people, you said you would come and you'd remove the sin of the land in a single day and you did. And we celebrate your coming. But we do it by coming to you. And we realize your love for us is a jealous love. And we realize that therefore you will come for us again. And what a day that will be. Come Lord Jesus. Amen.